And I'm in a new series. I'm going to get right into the word of the Lord. And this new series I've entitled Seeding the Clouds. And Jade Simmons spoke with us last week. And and she carried the Mother's Day message. I just thought did an incredible job. And spoke to everybody, not just mothers. And great word. And it was such a blessing. I'm in Ezekiel 34 today, a familiar text of scripture, if not familiar from the Bible, familiar from the words of an old hymn. In verse 26, I read, I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Remember the old song? Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord when I've broken the bands of their yoke and healed them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely. Oh, man. And COVID shall not devour them. They shall dwell safely. And no one shall make them afraid. And I will raise up for them a garden of renown. And it shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land. They shall no longer be consumed with hunger. Nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. Thus they shall know that I the Lord their God am with them and they the house of Israel or my people says the Lord God you are my flock the flock of my pasture you are men and I am your God says the Lord again notice in particular verse 26 there shall be showers of blessings in other words God is saying it will rain blessings Do you see that? That's a promise of God. And as a child of God, you have the right to go after every promise of God that is for you in Scripture. How would you like for God to rain favor upon your marriage? Your family, your kids. Many children are testing in schools right now. How would you like some favor to rain on your kids in school that are being tested right now? Just before the school year ends. How about your finances? Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning and open your word to our understanding that we might, with your enablement as well as revelation, because revelation alone doesn't mean that we move, but enable us to align our lives with the teachings of your word that we might please you And that we might see the results that you have promised us when we do this be made manifest among us. We want that. We desire to please you. We want to be where you are. We want you to be where we are. We want to walk with your presence in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Before I'm done today, I'm going to teach you why, if I can see my notes here, I'm still messed up, but 
Uh, before I'm done, I, I hope to teach you why we raise our hands when we come to church. You think you know, but I want to show you why. I began the series a couple of weeks ago, the Sunday before Mother's Day, by talking about how you can seed the clouds and that science has discovered, they did so early in the 19th century, the hydrologic cycle. And you can seed the clouds in your relationship with God spiritually. You can seed your emotional and thought life. You can even seed your financial future by applying a principle that we see that is employed by science in seeding the clouds to cause it to rain. They are doing this because there are drought-stricken areas where uh, they want to stop the, the harm of the cycle and the poverty and the starvation caused by drought. They also want to stop hurricanes from the devastation that they cause and create by flooding. So the thesis is they can seed the clouds and make... The hurricane clouds drop the excessive amounts of water they carry while they're still out at sea rather than over <clears throat> the land. This is amazing because the hydrologic cycle was not discovered, as I pointed out, until early 19th century. And yet it was in the Bible predicted in the book of Job, not predicted, it was foretold. Let me rephrase that. In the book of Job over 3,500 years ago. You may or may not know it, but the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible, we're told. And as I pointed out, now that nations are aware of the hydrologic cycle, they're doing things like even seeding the clouds at ski resorts when there is no snow so that people can ski. It's phenomenal that God actually gave Job this insight 34 centuries before science figured it out. Here's another example of the Bible's accuracy when it comes to science. And it was never meant to be about science, but where it speaks on science, I want you to have the assurance of knowing you can rely upon the teachings of the Word of God. You see, there's a big argument and debate out there that the Bible is unscientific. You can't believe the word of God. You can't trust its teachings and uh, ad infinitum. You know, you've heard it all. And there's a strong movement in some circles against the teachings or the accuracy of the Bible. They're always trying to tell you why the Bible's not accurate. And then they get, they keep getting proven wrong. Like this king didn't exist or that city was never there and that archaeologists prove them wrong and they, oh, well, this one didn't then. And so another example of the Bible's supreme accuracy, we all know that Columbus set sail, sail from Castile, Spain in 1492. And up until that time, they all thought the earth was flat. And if you ventured out too far, you'd drop off the edge, right? And there would be dragons waiting. And that was only 529 years ago. In fact, there are many of those maps that still exist. They, they survived. They're in museums. And on some of those maps, they actually had the words, here there be dragons printed when you got toward the edge. Here's one, and you can see the map, and it is printed, here there be dragons. Is that behind me? There it is, right where the arrow is pointing. And let's do a close-up of that. And there it is in Latin. A little bit blurry because I had to copy it from the Internet. But uh, it means in Latin, here. if you know Latin, here. 
here there be dragons. Here's the ancient Psalter world map from 1250 AD. And uh, here's an inset at the bottom of that map. And there you will see dragons at the bottom. See those? And it's flat. Notice it's flat. You sail so far and you fall off the edge and there are dragons waiting to devour you. Here's a close-up of an ancient Scandinavian map that survived. And there's dragon. There's a dragon attacking ships. And, and these were the Vikings. And so did you know that 2,700 years ago, God's word said the earth was round? That's 2,170. 71 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. So while everybody thought the earth was flat, Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, 22, speaking of God, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Circle, get it? Circle, round, not flat. And if you want to go to the Hebrew, you know what circle means? Circle. It means round. Amen. The word of God is dependable. It was never meant to be a book about science. It's about how to connect with God and to get back to the state that man existed in before by sin he failed. Now, I believe that people struggle in their faith to become everything that God wants them to become. Young lady at the end of the first service, first time here, waited to meet me and told me that she's just desperate to find her purpose in life and how the service had impacted her so much. That's really the story of every person here. No one wants to live their life and never fulfill the reason for which they were created. But you see, it's a struggle to grow your faith and to believe that God wants to bless you, that he wants to bless you more than you do. Duran was so effective in worship this morning, so powerful when he started, started to talk about how that as we sing to God, the Father, Father also sings to us. You see... That God really is calling us to him and wants to bless us more than we want to be blessed. But most folk don't know that. Oh, they hear preachers say it, but they don't know it. You, you know what I mean? Having it here is a whole lot different than having it here. Having faith isn't difficult. You just need to understand the nature of God. Took me years to learn what I'm about to share with you. Years. I thought faith was difficult to obtain. I thought you got it by reading the word of God. So I read and read and read and read and read and read through the Bible time and time and time and time and time again. And my faith did not grow proportionately. I tried to stretch my faith. I did everything I could to grow faith. Our struggle to believe grows out of our failure to know who God really is. That's why reading the word of God is important because in the word you find out who he is. But you can also read the word all day long and never know who he is. And that's what I'm really driving at. And what makes the word of God so important to us is, is this, that it will teach us what you will never discover about God on your own. But here's the other side of that. You have to have an open heart. And how many of us truly enter into a study of the word of God without presuppositions? 
How many of us really go to the Bible and read it like it's a, a book of instruction and there's nothing already imprinted upon our hearts and so we receive everything we can from the Word of God? Most of us filter things through what we already believe. We have presuppositions. And so who is God? What is he like? There's an ancient myth, and it's just a myth, but it tells a little bit about what I'm saying or communicates the point. On the uh, island of Crete, there was said to be a terrible creature that was half bull and half man. Can you imagine? It was a hideous, murderous thing, and it was in a maze, a labyrinth, and, and it demanded sacrifice every seven years. And so Theseus... A prince from Greece came over intending to fight and kill that creature. And he met and fell in love and she fell in love with him. Ariadne, who was the daughter of the king of Crete. And she devised a way for him to get into the maze and kill the minotaur if he could. And if he survived to find his way back out. Because the problem wasn't getting in alone or killing the minotaur. You also had to find your way out. And that's where many of us are at today, frankly. We, we get into these things we get into, and now it's finding our way out that becomes the challenge, right? Finding your way out of divorce, finding your way out of a wrecked career, finding your way out of an addiction by relating to anybody. But Ariadne devised a way to help Theseus do this. She gave him a big ball of string. And as he went in, he played the string out behind him, wound his way deep into the maze, encountered the minotaur, killed him, and then followed the string back out. It's just a myth. But if you were to apply that to God, you will find that from the very beginning, there is a string you can follow that leads you all of the way through the word of God that will help you know who God is. Amen, amen. Minotaurs and challenges constantly crop up in the course of life and you get lost in facing life's challenges and you need help. But if you will follow the thread of God's presence from Genesis to the book of Revelation, it's always saying the same thing. It's always leading you back to the heart of the Father, always. You look at God's very first act after creating man and you'll begin to see this thread emerge. The very first thing that God did whenever he created man was to bless him. And my subject is seeding the clouds of blessing. In Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And then these words, then God blessed them. The very first thing God did after making man was to bless them. If that doesn't give you some insight into the heart of who God is, I don't know what can. God blessed them. His earliest names reveal this about God as well, that he's strong and he's loving and he's kind. In Genesis 17 and 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And do you know what the, the word, Hebrew word for almighty God is? 
it's El Shaddai. Amen. And what it translates is the God who is more than enough. Not just enough. Not a little less than enough. More than enough. Amen. Somebody ought to give God some praise in this house. Hallelujah. There are 48 places in the Bible where Shaddai is used and an additional seven where El Shaddai is used. Is it any surprise that in the book of beginnings, in the book of Genesis, that out of the seven times El Shaddai is used, five of them are found in Genesis. It's like early on God's trying to establish the identity that he wants to be known by. Amen. God's always been like that. And when you study the Bible, you will find he's always been more than enough. From Adam to Noah to the flood to Abraham and Sarah's barrenness. From Isaac and Jacob to Jacob's crooked father-in-law Laban. And from Moses and Pharaoh to Joshua and Canaan. And from David to Goliath and from Paul and Silas into the Philippian jail. God's never met a match that he could not overcome. Never been engaged in a situation that he was not the master of. He's always been more than enough. And I want to tell you, he didn't lose any of that. He is still more than enough. The God that is more than enough for you today. Hallelujah. Somebody give God some praise. Amen. God has always wanted to know us personally and for us to know him He's always encouraged us to lean upon him. But so many times we struggle because we have this misconception of who he is. And to seed the clouds of blessing, you have to have faith. And the only way you're going to get it is learn the identity of God. In Genesis 12, Abraham called, or God called Abram rather. Let me rephrase that. God called Abram and began the process of blessing him. And trust me when I tell you, it is always, always a process. Always a process. And Abraham greatest need. He's Abraham now, no longer Abram. On Mount Moriah, when he had exhausted his own abilities, in Genesis twenty-two fourteen, God showed up and revealed himself as what? Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. He's always been there. And more than enough and willing to provide. You see, blessing is God's default setting, if I may say it like that. But if you second guess the goodness of God, You forfeit his blessing because his blessing can only come upon your life by faith. In other words, and remember this, this as long as you live, what you don't know by faith, you will never enjoy by experience. I want you to remember that. That's good enough. You need to write it down. What you don't know by faith, you will never enjoy by experience. And you see, there are reasons that believers don't know this. They don't know it by faith and therefore they're not enjoying by experience the promises of God. And the reason they don't know it is, well, there are a number of reasons. One is you hear all this stuff out there and everybody's so quick to condemn heresies that they oftentimes throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so you see the self-indulgence and the exaggerations and the abuses of people who are tele-evangelists and you throw out the good nature of God right along with throwing out the bad. Oh, I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. Amen. Amen. Another is the sovereignty of God. I'm going to spend a little time on this one. 
Because we all believe that God is sovereign. But do you know that if that teaching is not properly presented, it actually defeats your spirit, your attitude, your heart, and it defeats your prayers before you ever begin to pray? What do I mean by that? You can actually influence God, is what I'm stating, to rain favor and blessings upon you. You can seed the clouds of favor and blessings. Notice I didn't say that bad things would never happen because we live in an imperfect world. But you see, some people don't understand the sovereign nature of God. They do not believe that we can influence God to bless us. They believe that he alone decides who, when, what, and everything else that he will ever do without any influence from us. And they correctly say that God is sovereign. He is sovereign. He really is. He is the ultimate in being sovereign. The problem is they interpret his sovereignty to mean that God cannot allow himself to be influenced by anyone or anything, by your worship, by your prayers. He's already decided everything he's going to do. You will never influence him. And to, for him to allow your prayers to influence him, they believe means that he just relinquished his sovereignty. They really believe that. And what they often are failing to consider is that God puts his desires in us before we pray. And that's why we pray. Because we're praying the heart of God. We're expressing what God wants in the earth. Amen. And so in Ezekiel 22, we see this clearly in verse 30. So I, who's that, who's the I there? That's God. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I poured out my indignation on them. I've consumed them with with the fire of my wrath and I've recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. God said, I looked, I, I, I tried to get somebody to pray. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want judgment to come, but nobody would let me put in their heart my desire. And nobody prayed. You see, oftentimes the reason you pray is because, because God first put it in your heart. How many of you know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden God will burden you to pray about something. All of a sudden you'll feel to pray about something. That's not just your flesh. That's not just you. That's God looking for somebody to birth what he is wanting to be done. I can prove it in the Bible. Psalms 27, 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Who said it first? It was God that said Seek my face. And then my heart responded. Your heart responded. And said yes. God calls us to pray. And that's why we pray. It's because he put it in our hearts. Is there a parent in this room. That's never felt to pray for their child. A grandparent that's never prayed for their grandchildren. Is there a man that's never prayed for his own career or future. A woman that's never prayed for her own destiny. God puts that in your heart. You know why? Because he instructs us to pray. Our father which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. He doesn't need us. But he puts it in our hearts to pray. That his kingdom would come. And his will would be done in earth as it is in heaven. 
Psalms 37 and 4 said, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And this means two things. He will place his desires in you if you will humble your heart and seek to be like him. He will replace your desires with his desires. And then when you pray, give you those desires that he has placed within you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You can move heaven to change earth. You can pray and touch the very throne of God. And God allows you to enter into divine partnership with him. People say, but that means he's not sovereign. I beg to disagree. Because to better comprehend the sovereignty of God, we must understand what a kingdom is as opposed to a democracy. You see, what you believe about any number of things can actually influence your faith or ability to believe. Your worldview can be shaped by your childhood experiences, your mom, your dad, something that happened to you, good or bad, uh, the values that you were taught to embrace, your education, where you live, whether you were raised to go to church and even what kind of church that you were raised in. How much TV you watch and social media have big influences on your ability to believe God. And they can alter your perception of who God is and you don't even know it. And here's a kicker. Even political systems can influence your ability to know who God is. In Matthew 8, Jesus said that a pagan Roman centurion straight off the boat from Rome. Are you getting the point? He is an idol worshiper. He hears about Jesus. His servant is sick at home. And he comes to Jesus and says, Lord, my servant is sick. And he doesn't even ask the Lord to go. And Jesus says, okay, I'll go with you. And he said, no, nah, that isn't necessary. Just speak the word only. And my my servant will be healed. I'm preaching to somebody right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And Jesus healed that servant. And whenever the man, just by a spoken word, and when the man walked away, Jesus said, I've not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. He turned to all of the Jewish people there. There were rabbis there. There were members of the Sanhedrin and Pharisees and, and the rabbinical council. And Jesus looked at them and some of them had memorized the entire Torah because their educational system taught them to. Jesus looked at him and said, you're the people of the book, really? Here's a pagan that doesn't even know the book that has greater faith than you have. And you have to ask why. I'll tell you why. Because his political experience positioned him to better understand sovereignty. Amen. He was under the governance of a dictator, an emperor. And the emperor said, you do this. He didn't take a vote. He said, how many are for it and how many against it? That's not what he did. The emperor said, you go do this. And the man said, yes, sir. So he understood that Jesus could tell demonic spirits go and they couldn't argue and sickness leave and it had to obey. When are we going to grasp the power that is in the name of Jesus or the authority that he has in his divine office? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So that man's political construct permitted him to better understand sovereignty than the Jewish people who did not understand sovereignty. Amen. And to understand the sovereignty of God, you need to view sovereignty through the lens of what kingdom means, not democracy. Because these filters can be a part of your life and you not even know they are there. Not even know they're there. And that is the essence of sovereignty. It is 
whenever there is a sovereign in control. And the word sovereign or sovereignty, notice what's right in the middle of it. It is reign, R-E-I-G-N. Amen. Sovereigns reign. They make unilateral decisions. Hello, somebody. They rule over their subjects. And so we're talking about kings. But can I tell you, there's an office over kings that's called emperors. And emperors were king of kings and lord of lords. I've got somebody I want to tell you about that is not only king of kings and lord of lords. He is king over emperors. Hello, somebody. He's lord of the universe. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess. And so you need to understand sovereignty through the lens of what a dictatorship or kingdom was all about. That God voluntarily of his own will includes us as a part of the process is no less him being sovereign or making a sovereign decision than it would be if a king decided to construct a castle or a highway and send his subjects to do it. When God says it's done and sends us to do it, you're hearing what I'm saying. Doesn't mean he surrendered sovereignty, it rather proves his sovereignty. Because somebody that's going around saying, I'm king, I'm king, I'm king, and has no subjects under him, guess what? He's not much of a sovereign. Hello, somebody? It's like the guys in the insane asylum. Amen. And some guys out there making noise like a motorboat. And I'm not making fun. I'm just telling you a story. And so somebody said, why are you doing that? He said, I'm a motorboat. He said, how do you know that? God told me. And a fellow in the corner spoke up and said, I did not. Amen. You can be God all day long if you got subjects to reign over. But if you don't have any subjects, it means you're not king. Are you getting my point here? Amen. And so I want to say right now that you can pray for God's favor and blessings upon your life because you can influence the heavens. I've got to add this, but God doesn't bless disobedience. And you need to know that straight up front. Rebellion will cause the favor of God to be blocked in your life. And God will let you go on for a while. Amen. You know what sin is? Sin is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. God tells you how your needs should be met. When you seek to meet those any other way than God has prescribed in his word, it is sin. The arrow has veered from the target. And you will cause the favoring blessings of God to be lifted from your life. Neither does God bless lack of vision or lack of effort. You can't just pray and go sit in a corner and wait for it to be done. Amen. Now I got that out of the way. Let me preach. Amen. Okay. The thread of blessing continues all the way from Genesis through Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, on and on and on. The thread of blessing continues. In fact, one of my favorite passages of scripture, and you hear me do this at the end of every Sunday service, number six and 22. And the Lord spake to Moses saying, speak 
to Aaron and his son saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Whoa, that's fascinating. Because when the priest speaks that blessing, God himself said, they're putting my name on the children of Israel. In other words, watch it. This can slip by you. When you bless people, you stamp them with God. That's why you ought to bless your children. You're stamping them with God. Some folk are busy going around cursing people. Oh, they don't mean to. Pointing out all the flaws and the ugly things and everything else that's wrong in their life. But what you're inadvertently doing is stamping them with the wrong thing. Amen. To bless the children of Israel, the priest would use both their hands to form the Hebrew letter Shin. Watch this now. This is the letter Shin. That's the letter Shin. This is what the priest would do. Look up there on the screen. This is what they would do. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And God said, when you do that, you put my name on the children of Israel. Do you know what Shin? It's the 21st letter of the alphabet, Hebrew alphabet. And you know what it means? Many ancient alphabets such as Egyptian hieroglyphics or the Chinese alphabet There are letters of the alphabet form pictures, and so does the Hebrew, and there's the letter Shin. Notice, it's these three things that come up like that, okay? Shin actually is the middle part of the word El Shaddai. So when you do this this symbol of the Shin, and you hold that up and you bless people, you're putting El Shaddai on them, amen. It also stands for the Shekinah of God. And it also stands for Shalom, which means peace. As they made the letter Shin, the priests taught that the Shekinah of God's glory would shine through their fingers to the nation of Israel. They were creating a portal from heaven to earth for God's glory to shine through. Amen. You're wondering why you raise your hands in church. And for that reason... Because they believe that when you perform this and you form the letters of the, uh, of the word shin, uh, that, that when you do this, that for many, uh, for, for to this day, many observant Jews will turn their back on the priest when he pronounces the, the benediction or the blessing. You know why? Lest they look upon the glory of God. Others cover themselves with their prayer shawl, their talit, and look down. Lest they see the glory of God and gaze upon the glory of God. They believe it that strong. Amen. Here's something interesting for all of you Star Trek fans. Do you remember Leonard Nimoy? Star Trek? The Vulcan greeting? Guess where he got it? He was raised Jewish. He got it from the synagogue. That's where it came from. Amen. 
When Israel fought the Amalekites, they won as long as Moses' hands were lifted in the air. Why? When you raise your hands in worship, you are forming the letter of the alphabet Shin. Put that up there if you would quickly. Amen. Not, not that. I want the guy with his hands raised. Amen. Somebody help me there. No, that's Leonard Nimoy. You're behind. Amen. There we go. Thank you. They're going to catch up. Amen. All right. But you see, he's got his hands raised. That is what happens. The same thing is occurring when you raise your hands. You are literally creating the Hebrew letter of the alphabet, Shin, that carries the name of God in it and opens a portal to another world. Hello, somebody. Hallelujah. So when Moses' hands were raised, Israel was winning the battle. When he put his hands down, Israel would lose. Think about it. The implications of this are profound. The more you worship, the more victory comes. The less you worship, the less victory you experience. You gotta know the nature of God. God is looking for a way into your life. God is looking for a way to bless you. God is looking for a portal to release his glory in your life. Amen. And so in Psalm 63 and four, it says, thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Psalms 134 and verse 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. Try it right now. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. You're putting God's name on somebody. You're putting God's name on your family. You're declaring the name of God. You're creating a way that his presence can enter into your life. That is why when Duran and the worship team were singing, you could not help but raise your hands. It is the instinctive response. You say that's Old Testament worship. Well, 1 Timothy 2, 8 then. I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Men, you're the priest to your family. Raise your hands over them. Let God into your home. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Don't you feel something in this room right now? Somebody's about to have a breakthrough. Woo! My God, I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. God is moving in this house. Somebody could get healed right now. Somebody could receive a miracle right now. The priestly blessing of number six is customarily chanted by Jewish parents over their children every night of their lives. Every night of their lives, number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to smile upon you. Be gracious to you. Lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Jewish parents say that, sing it, they chant it over their children every single night before they go to bed. By the time a child turns 13, they've been blessed 4,745 times. 
You see, the reason you need to do that is somebody else is speaking death over your child. The television is speaking death over your child. Social media is speaking death over your child. Leading them the wrong way. You need to imprint them with the name of God where they never get away from it. Hallelujah to the Lamb. You need to put God's name on them where they can never forget it no matter how long they live. And if you're Leonard Nimoy on Star Trek, you're still doing this as a grown man because something marked your life. Here's another interesting fact. Notice how the letter Shin resembles flames of fire. Do you know what scholars say on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit fell and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, cloven split, that it was a letter shame, amen, that appeared over them. I'm closing. You can seed the clouds of God's favor and cause it to rain blessings upon your life. That's my contention. It's my point of debate. It is my thesis. It is my proposition. I believe it is founded in scripture. You can cause it to rain. You say, how? Number one, learn who God is. Flush the junk. Get rid of the crud. I don't care if it's politics. I don't care if it was you was raised in one kind of church and now you in another. And all of that. Get rid of it. Amen. Change what you think to reflect the teachings of the Bible. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank God for the wonderful people that influenced you and gave you scripture and a foundation to stand on. But be willing to admit where they got it wrong if you need to. Amen. Number two, learn who he is. To learn who he is, rather, you need to learn his word and also encounter his heart you see that's really where the problem is isn't it you got all kind of folk out there that know the word but they don't know the heart and it takes both because if you don't know the heart you can read the word and the word the letter kills but the spirit makes alive oh they said concerning Jesus we have a law right here Right here in the book, we have a law, and by our law, this man ought to die because he made himself to be the son of God. Boy, you're in trouble when you can get the Bible to say that you need to crucify Jesus. Okay? Number three, position your life for favor and blessing. Sin brings the wrong consequences into our lives, and it turns us away from God's favor and blessings. So stop. Like right now, like yesterday, like last week, get over it. Well, you don't know how I was raised. Probably about like I was. Get over it. Amen. You say, well, I'm not perfect. I'm not either. Join the club. Say, if people knew what I was doing, it'd destroy this church because this church is so good. And I don't know if I want to join that church or not because I saw some stuff in it that wasn't perfect. Well, look, if this was a perfect church, we wouldn't let you be a member. Because it would ruin it for the rest of us. Amen. 
We need imperfect people like you who just want to know the word of God and have a connection with God and know the heart of the Father and let God bring us deeper into relationship with him. And pray. Pray. Prayer moves God to act. He is sovereign. He really is. But he has chosen to answer the prayers of his people. And God will put in you things to pray for. I shall never forget. Some of you have been around long enough. You've heard me tell the story. But it's been many years ago. I was just a young man and crazy and stupid. And it's hard for you to ever imagine your pastor as being a druggie, isn't it? No, like some of you are like, what? Yeah. And I was stoned one night. And had been drinking Jack Daniels too. Which I hated. But to be cool. I was drinking that nasty stuff and taking drugs. And I was in a drug pusher's home. Who later did years and years and years in Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana. Because he took a razor and cut some people to pieces. So if you think he meant what I'm about to tell you. Well you decide. We got in an argument, he pulled out a pistol, cocked the hammer back, shoved it in my face and cursed me out and said, I'm going to kill you right now. And I stood there like, I was raised by a praying grandma and I knew about heaven and I knew about hell. And I knew that in a moment I was getting ready to find out what hell looked like. And all of a sudden the strangest expression came over his face and he just kind of did his eyes like and he uncocked the hammer of that gun and put it down and said, get out of here. If I ever see you again, I'll kill you. I changed my mind. I was going to shoot you. And you know what I did? I got myself out of there. Amen. Two days later, I called my grandmother. And the first thing she said was, Richard, where were you two days ago at seven o'clock in the evening? And I felt the hair go warm on the nap of my neck and stand straight up because that was at the very moment I was standing there with a gun in my face. And she said, I prayed the death angel off of you. God hears and answers prayer. There is a God in the heavens. Stand with me. Stand with me. Learn who God is. To learn who he is, you need to learn his word, but also encounter his heart. Number three, position yourself for favor and blessing. Number four, pray. God puts it in your heart, pray. And then number five, trust God to be who he says he is. Amen.